Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's get to the guilty verdict of Leticia Stausch out of El Paso County, Colorado. Let's start at the beginning. 11-year-old Gannon Stausch got off to a rocky start in this harsh world. He was born prematurely at one pound, six ounces to Al Stausch and Landon Hoyt. He fought through this difficult start to his life and he grew into a smiley boy they lovingly called G-Man. He was also a protective older brother to his sister, Lena, who referred to him as Big Bubba. And as I researched this case, One thing kept coming up time and time again. Everyone mentions his smile, his immediate family, his grandmother, his fifth grade teacher who spoke at his memorial, and pictures that pop up everywhere in this heartbreaking case that grew from a missing persons report to a brutal and horrific murder. Well, they always reference his bright smile. So let's start with a timeline of the case. Gannon and his sister Lena were living with Al and his wife Leticia Stausch. Leticia and Al married in 2015 when Gannon was about six years old. Gannon's biological mother was battling some personal issues issues in South Carolina, which led to Al having the kids a majority of the time in Colorado. On January 25th, Al left for National Guard duty in Oklahoma. Two days later, Leticia reports that Gannon left the house somewhere between 3.15 and 4 p.m. She claimed Gannon was headed to a friend's house. El Paso County Sheriff's Office initially called the disappearance a report of a juvenile runaway. Well, three days later, on January 30th, Gannon's disappearance reaches the classification of missing and endangered persons. Then, five days after Gannon was last seen, rumors have been circulating online suspecting Leticia of misleading law enforcement about Gannon's disappearance. And although law enforcement is not addressing the rumors, Leticia granted an interview with KKTV in which she doesn't show her face and she actually claims she's the victim in this situation. I'll just let you hear a portion of that interview. I asked for an attorney during the interview, uh, and I was denied that by them. I was held because they were blocking the door, and I was told I couldn't leave, and that if I would have touched them, they would have probably, you know, said I still wasn't complying or said I was, you know, trying to run away or something. But during the interview, I asked several times, could I stop the interview? Could I get an attorney? Could I stop the interview? Could I get an attorney? I was denied. I was told I couldn't get nothing to drink. I couldn't go to the bathroom. I mean, it was continuously that my constitutional rights were violated. I found it interesting listening to that interview that Leticia rarely shows sadness or remorse about Gannon missing. In fact, during the whole 11-minute unedited video, she never even says she loves Gannon until the very last 10 seconds when she goes from speaking clearly to what sounds like tears, but remember, we can't see her face. She is instead defensive in protection mode of her 17-year-old daughter who was questioned in the disappearance. She is also critical of law enforcement, and she also reaffirms that Gannon is not dead. Well, on February 4th, a neighbor comes forward with camera footage from his ring doorbell system. The footage shows Leticia getting into a red pickup truck on the morning of the disappearance at 10.13 a.m. Gannon is also seen walking slowly and getting into the truck. When the truck returns at 2.19 in the afternoon, Gannon is nowhere to be seen on the cameras. Once the footage is released, 
Al sees the footage and turns on Leticia immediately saying she lied about the story and lied about the timeline. Al and Landon give a joint statement on YouTube where an emotional Landon pleads for help in the case. Like, I need my boy. Like, more than air. More than, than life. Like, that's who he is to me. Gannon, he is my little man. Um, he fills every void. He's happy. He, every time that he calls me and talk to, talks to me, he has to tell a joke. And sometimes it's the jokes that don't even make any sense. And sometimes they're just the most of the corniest jokes. But that's my boy. Like, he just wants everybody to be happy. And when, when he's missing, like, only thing that I can question is, like, why? Why Gannon? Because he doesn't deserve this at all, by no means. And the only thing that I can do as, mama, as his mom is to get it out, to make sure that Gannon's story doesn't die and that my boy comes home. Like, he needs to come home. Like, and it's strange that he just disappears. Between Landon's statement and Leticia's interview with KKTV, Landon doesn't focus on her pain. She spends most of her time talking about Gannon, whereas Leticia spent nearly all 11 minutes talking about herself. All right, well, after thousands of hours spent by law enforcement, including over 100 search warrants, Leticia is arrested on March 2nd in South Carolina, where her family lives. Searchers had found a piece of particle board in a rural area with Gannon's blood on it. And despite that Gannon's body had not been found, she is charged with first-degree murder of a child under 12, as well as child abuse that resulted in death. They also charge her with tampering with a deceased body. Following the arrest, Gannon's father, Al, released a statement saying the following, My little boy is not coming home. We will never play Nintendo again. No more Taco Tuesdays. No more smooth-looking haircuts. And no more G-Man for the world. The person who committed this heinous, horrible crime is one that I gave more to than anyone else on this planet. And that is a burden that I will carry with me for a very long time. Well then, on March 20th of 2020, authorities reveal they have found the body of Gannon Stoush in a suitcase in Pace, Florida. He was dumped in a spillway where the suitcase got stuck on a retaining wall. The autopsy shows that Gannon has been stabbed 18 times. He suffered four blunt trauma injuries to his head, and he was also shot in the jaw. And here's where the case slows down dramatically. March 20th of 2020 was the beginning of all the COVID-19 shutdowns, which include the justice system grinding to a near halt in some cases. But despite the COVID restrictions, law enforcement promises to continue its work, remaining steadfast and diligent until prosecution in the case. Now, information has surfaced during this time frame, questioning Leticia's credibility. She's told investigators varying accounts of the last day Gannon was seen, including stories about how Two different men raped her and then abducted Gannon. She later said one man took Gannon after Gannon hurt himself in a bike crash. Her Facebook page and LinkedIn profile had listed that she had worked at a school in Colorado as a curriculum developer, but the district had confirmed to the Colorado Springs Gazette that she had never been employed. She also had a checkered employment history that included being fired from her last three teaching jobs. Now, court records also revealed that she had been arrested in North and South Carolina for domestic violence, but those cases had been dropped. 
Well, finally, three years later, on April 3rd, the trial began for Leticia Stoush. She had previously pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. The prosecution asserted that Leticia had been abusing the boy for two years, including sexual abuse. They contended that on the day of his murder, Leticia had killed the boy in his bedroom, then stuffed the bloodied body, which she wrapped in his bedroom blankets, into a suitcase, along with bloody pillows. She then cleaned up the blood in Gannon's bedroom. Then over the next few weeks, she moved the body around, still in the suitcase, until finally transporting Gannon to Florida and dumping him off a freeway bridge into a river that flows into the Gulf of Mexico. All of these movements, according to the prosecution, indicated that she knew the difference between right and wrong, and therefore she can't claim insanity. Now, I'll spare you the horrible details of the death of Gannon, but Leticia left no doubt that Gannon was dead before she transported his body in the suitcase. And toxicology reports also revealed that Gannon had been drugged with hydrocodone. Gannon's blood was also found on Leticia's shoe, and her DNA was linked to the gun that was used to shoot Gannon in the jaw. Now, throughout the trial, the defense called expert witnesses to explain Leticia's horrific behavior, claiming she suffers from disassociative identity disorder from years of her own abuse suffered at the hands of her parents. They testified that Leticia had multiple personalities, including ones named Taylor, Jasmine, and Maria Sanchez. Leticia claimed Maria killed Gannon. And during closing arguments, the prosecution rebuffed those claims, saying that internet searches show Leticia just plainly hated her stepson and was tired of being a glorified babysitter. Those internet searches showed that she included the phrase, I hate my stepson. Well, after less than two days of deliberation, the jury found Leticia guilty on all counts on May 8th. Now, before sentencing, Gannon's mother, Landon, spoke to the court, saying that she trusted Leticia mother to mother. She also said she had checked on her past and that Leticia had presented herself as trustworthy. She also reminded everyone that Leticia spent the early days of the investigation projecting her misdeeds onto her and Gannon's father and Gannon's sister had just one thing to say before the sentencing. According to Gannon's father, she said, you do not do that to people, especially your stepkids. It's never all right to do those things. Now, when handing down the sentencing, Judge Gregory Werner questioned her multiple personality defense, saying that no time after the murder did Leticia ever wonder why she was carrying her stepson around in her luggage. Judge Werner said that the evidence in the case was the most horrific he has ever seen. He then sentenced her to life in prison without parole. Now, on Friday, Leticia was sent to the Denver Women's Correctional Facility. And because this story was so heavy on the heart, I just want to remind you how Gannon began his life. He was one pound, six ounces, and he fought his way through those difficult early first weeks to become a boy remembered for his bright smile. So maybe share your smile with someone today in Gannon's honor. All right, let's shift gears. Let's revisit the story out of Utah involving Corey Richens, who is accused, among other things, of murdering her husband, Eric, by poisoning him with fentanyl. Now, I covered this case last week. Remember, she's accused of poisoning her husband and then writing a children's book about his death. The case is loaded with twists and turns involving insurance money and drugs and a possible affair. So if you want a refresher, jump back a week and listen to that episode of Rise and Crime. And I thought it would be coming to you today with an 
update about her detention hearing that was supposed to be held Friday. Well, that hearing was canceled. And even more salacious details were revealed about the case and the actions that led up to the death of Eric. So let's dive into those new details. It was revealed that when Eric and Corey were married in 2013, there was actually a prenuptial agreement. Now, this agreement laid out that neither party had rights to the other's present or future income or property or assets, but there was one exception. If Eric died while the two were lawfully married, his partnership interest in his business would actually transfer to Corey. Eric also owned his home before he and Corey married. Now, if you remember from the previous reporting, Eric had visited with attorneys and talked with his family about divorcing Corey. These conversations happened in the two years before his death. Well, the new revelations in the court documents shed light on the reason for these conversations. Eric discovered in 2020 that Corey had established a home equity line of credit on Eric's home and that Corey had borrowed and spent $250,000 from that home equity loan. She also had accessed his bank accounts and withdrawn at least $100,000. She had also racked up $30,000 in debt on his credit cards. Now, as part of their household relationship, Corey was responsible for paying the taxes. However, she didn't pay the IRS. She instead kept the over $134,000 meant for taxes. Now, Eric had confronted his wife about these inconsistencies, and she had agreed to pay back the money for the taxes. On one of those visits to his lawyers in late 2020, Eric changed his will, and he placed control of his estate in the hands of his sister, Kate Richens Benson. He also formed a living trust. Now, a living trust isn't that unusual, especially when the person originating the trust has multiple properties or significant assets. And one benefit of a living trust is that the establishing person's wishes after their death have less risk of being challenged. It's just a more secure way to plan your estate. Well, with the establishment of the trust, Eric changed his life insurance policies to reflect that the trust would be the beneficiary of the $500,000 policy. This removed Corey, who was the original beneficiary. And court documents also revealed that Corey had purchased four life insurance policies between 2015 and 2017. And it appears Eric was unaware of these policies at the time of his death. These policies could pay out a total of nearly $2 million. But Corey wasn't done yet. Two months before Eric's death, she applied for another $100,000 insurance policy on Eric. Now that particular policy was granted on February 4th. It was one week later that law enforcement alleges Corey purchased illicit fentanyl from a dealer in Ogden, Utah. Law enforcement also alleges she used that purchase to attempt to poison and kill Eric on Valentine's Day. Now, here's how the court documents assert the drug purchase and poisoning went down. Corey contacted an acquaintance who hooked her up with a drug dealer's phone number. She then met with that dealer at a Maverick gas station in Draper, Utah on February 11th of 2022. She purchased 15 to 30 pills, which Corey was told were fentanyl. Then on Valentine's Day, Corey left a sandwich and a love note on the seat of Eric's truck. Eric told friends that shortly after eating the sandwich, he broke out in hives and he had difficulty breathing. Eric had one of his son's EpiPens in the truck and he administered it to himself. He then fell asleep. He told those same friends that he had thought Corey was trying to poison him. Law enforcement contends that Corey's failed attempt on Eric's life on Valentine's Day did not dissuade her from obtaining more fentanyl. 
They contend Corey again contacted the drug dealer and purchased $900 worth of fentanyl. It was just six days after that purchase that Eric died from an overdose of fentanyl that was ingested orally. The death happened a few hours after Corey had made Eric an alcoholic drink to celebrate a large real estate closing. Again, if you listen to last week's episode, I break down the night of the poisoning. All right, so what did Corey's debt load look like just prior to Eric's death on March 4th when Eric was poisoned? Well, she owed $189,000 in tax debt and she owed a hard money lender almost $1.9 million. A hard money loan is a short-term loan that is secured by real estate. She also had committed to owing Eric just over $500,000. So if you're keeping track, that's almost $2.7 million that she owed. Two days after Eric's death, Corey arranged for a locksmith to drill Eric's safe. The safe reportedly contains somewhere around $125,000 to $165,000 in cash. Now remember, Eric's sister Katie was the designated controller of Eric's estate. And Katie questioned Corey about breaking into the safe, telling her she did not have the authority to be doing the drilling. Corey allegedly punched Katie in the face and neck during this confrontation. Deputies were called to settle the dispute. The deputies then called Eric's estate planning lawyer. That lawyer broke the news to Corey that the estate was now controlled by the Eric Richens Living Trust. So with the new information, what happens now? Well, along with the charges of criminal homicide and aggravated murder, additional possession of controlled substances charge has been added. And her detention hearing has been postponed to June 12th. I'll keep you updated. All right, on to another case. And how about some movement in that case from 2013? Five-year-old Jeremiah Oliver was reported missing in Massachusetts in December of 2013. But he most likely had been missing since September of that year. At least, that was the last time family members reported seeing him. In fact, it was his seven-year-old sister, not his mother, that was the one who alerted a teacher at the school that her brother was missing and also that her nine-year-old brother was being abused. She told the teacher that the last time she saw Jeremiah, he had been bleeding from his hand. She also said her mother was afraid he would die from the wound. Well, later in the month of December of that year, Jeremiah's mother, Elsa, was arrested along with her boyfriend, 32-year-old Alberto Sierra, on charges relating to the disappearance of Jeremiah. Once arrested, neither Elsa or Alberto would say anything about the whereabouts of the preschooler. Soon after the arrest, it came to light that the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families had been monitoring Jeremiah's family for two years because allegations of neglect had been raised. It was then revealed that an assigned social worker had skipped mandatory monthly visits for the previous eight months. Just let that settle in as I tell you more about this case. Elsa was battling mental illness and had moved frequently with the four children. She had met Alberto just a few months prior to Jeremiah's September disappearance. Alberto had a history of domestic abuse. His previous girlfriend had filed restraining orders against him twice. Previous reports detail that Alberto had threatened Elsa with a knife. He had also knocked Jeremiah off of a toilet. Heartbreakingly, in April of 2014, five months after Jeremiah's reported disappearance, a body was found in a grassy area off of Interstate 190 in Sterling, Massachusetts. 
The dead boy was wrapped in a cloth and stuffed into a suitcase. Investigators determined the body to be Jeremiah. And just as a side note, isn't it so heartbreaking that I'm bringing you two cases today about young boys who've been put into suitcases after being killed? All right, back to the case. Well, nine long years later, Alberto has been arrested and charged with murder of Jeremiah, as well as disinterring a body. Alberto should be arraigned on Thursday, and the charges are a long time coming. Law enforcement had previously charged Alberto with kidnapping and assaulting Jeremiah, but prosecutors dropped those charges because they didn't want the double jeopardy to prevent any future homicide prosecution. And Alberto did plead guilty for assaulting Jeremiah's mother, Elsa, and his siblings. He was sentenced for up to seven years in state prison for those offenses. So what about Jeremiah's mother? Well, Elsa pleaded guilty to abusing her surviving children in 2017. Prosecutors had dropped the charges for her alleged role in Jeremiah's death for the same reason. They didn't want to risk any possible future charges for the murder of the five-year-old. Now, both Alberto and Elsa were released from prison in 2020. So while incarcerated, Elsa was transferred at least once to a mental facility to receive treatment. And remember the horrific lapse in visitation to Jeremiah's home? Well, this case caused Massachusetts to revamp their child protection agency. The social worker who missed those eight visits was fired along with two supervisors. One month after the boy's body was found, Olga Rausch, who was leading the agency, resigned. During her time in that position, multiple children had died in abusive homes. In January of 2015, the entire agency was reformed under new Governor Charlie Baker. Later that year, Baker and the Social Workers Union agreed to multiple policy changes that were designed to strengthen how the agency investigated abuse allegations as well as how they track missing children. But children advocacy groups claim Massachusetts Department of Child Welfare hasn't changed much since Jeremiah's death. According to the Friends for Advocacy Group, Massachusetts is one of the worst performing state child welfare agencies based on several critical data measurements. Following the arrest, police chief Ernest Martineau recalled how he was on his department's investigative unit back in 2014 when the boy died. He said the following, In a case like this, where the body was on 190, something you drive by every day, it just continues to reflect on your memory. Coming in today to the courthouse, I drove by that. It's always present. And like I said, it's something we said 10 years ago that we would never forget. We would never give up on this case. He then followed up with this in his statement. This case rocked the conscience of the city of Fitchburg. At one point, we were Jeremiah's family, 45,000 residents in the city. And we're here today beginning the process of healing. Now, Jeremiah was remembered at his funeral as a happy, smiling boy who loved to play in the dirt and collect bugs. And it's unclear currently what additional evidence law enforcement have that they didn't have in the last nine years. So I'll watch for updates on these charges and I'll keep you informed. Well, that's your Monday edition of Rise in Crime. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules and keep safe out there.